Welcome to the Aspen podcast for this issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. My name is Mary Marion, and I'm an associate editor for NCP. I'm a clinical dietitian from Tucson, Arizona. I would like to welcome our guest today, Dr. John Fang, who was co-author for an article in this month's NCP, Feeding Tube Placement, Errors and Complications. Dr. Fang is a gastroenterologist at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Welcome, Dr. Fang. Thank you. First, I'd like to ask you if you have any disclosures that you would like to make. Uh, yeah, I'm a consultant for Boston Scientific and Merit Medical, and I have a startup company called Veritract. Great. Thanks for declaring those for our audience. So I think we'll just launch right into the questions that I have prepared. And I really thank you for you and your co-author's article, as I thought it was a very nice review in how to identify patients that are good candidates for enteral feeding, what type of factors we should consider in two placements. So my first question is that we all know that enteral nutrition is the best approach for providing nutrition support when it's needed. Thus, it's great to have this updated review that you and your colleagues wrote. One of the first things that you state in your article is that one of the errors in placing feeding tubes is not confirming placement. So we know that using the electromagnetic devices that are currently available are becoming more common and that they're nice because they provide direct visualization of tube location once you've placed it or are placing it. Do you still recommend obtaining a radiograph after you've used such a device and you feel like you know exactly where the tube is located? And that's a very good question. I think that certainly if you're using any other well, any bedside method other than that, you certainly have to confirm by radiography before both in sometimes in guiding but certainly before in confirming placement. I think with the new electromagnetic device, the data is starting to show that if you're confident in placement in its location at time of placement that it's probably not required. However, there have been some case reports and adverse event reports that even using that system, that tubes can be in the wrong location because it is still a representation of where the tube is. So if if you're confident and it looks in good position on that, I think the data is starting to move that probably don't need to get additional radiographic confirmation. However, I do think there are a minority of cases where there is some concern, again, looking at the images, that it may or may not be in the right place. And I think if there's any question, better to be safe than sorry and, and still conform with the radiograph. But I think that should be the minority of cases. Yeah, and I'm wondering if you're a facility that does this all the time and you collect data and show that your staff is competent in determining where the feeding tube is located, it might be okay to go with that route. What would you think about a facility, let's say a rural hospital, where they don't do this as often? Do you think it would be good for them to collect some data and determine the competency of the places, the people and clinicians placing the feeding tubes before they go the route of not getting the radio confirmation? 
Yes, absolutely. I think that no matter what size institution you are, that everyone should collect and analyze and review their own QA data. And whenever adopting a new technology, that certainly that the proper training and experience should take place. But part of that is confirming that's taking place. So not only when you're starting it with new technology and new practitioners, but also on an ongoing basis that there are some review that the tubes are being placed safely, efficiently, uh, and correctly. So I couldn't agree with you more. For uh, Again, that's true with any technology. So my next question is that many studies suggest that we start enteral nutrition within 24 to 48 hours of admission, especially for critically ill patients, because of the multitude of benefits associated with these early enteral feedings. In your opinion, is there an ideal location for tube placement in this patient population? And what criteria would you monitor to determine if it's safe to feed these patients in order to avoid the errors that you and your colleagues have outlined in your article? Again, I think you've hit on a obviously a really important area in terms of where to feed these patients. I think everyone agrees, as you stated, with critically ill patients, the earlier the better, again, within the first 24 to 48 hours. And really the controversy or debate is gastric versus post-pyloric. And it's one of those things that at present, and again, new technology can change this, and maybe the electromagnetic guidance systems and other technology that's coming out on the market will change this, is that it's always been easier to place feeding tubes in the stomach, and that should be fine for many patients. But that being said, there's a especially critically ill patients, as well as a whole variety of other patients who won't tolerate gastric feeding. And the data shows that with gastric feeding that often patients don't get a significant percentage of their goal feeds and that perhaps if post-pyloric feeding tubes could be placed easily in everyone, they would get a higher percentage of their goal feeds, which uh, again, some data suggests that that's important that they get a higher percentage of their goal feeds because they're not stopped for patient intolerance, they're not stopped for procedures, so on and so forth. So I I think, again, we're right on the cusp of that in that for many places, placing feeding tubes in the stomach is quicker and easier and many patients will tolerate it. But perhaps if feeding tubes could be placed easily post-pyloric in everyone, patients would get a greater percent of tube feed. So I think the situation we're at right now is if you have good methods technology, techniques, uh, and expertise, in many cases, placing a small bowel will alleviate those problems. If, and I think it's still reasonable to start with gastric feeds, but if there is intolerance, to quickly do things to address intolerance so that patients are getting to their goal feed rates and a higher percentage of their goal quicker. And what kind of criteria would you suggest a clinician monitor to determine if it's okay to start a tube feeding in this patient population, the critically ill patient who's just come in the door? Well, I think that there's better consensus on that is that as long as the patient isn't on pressors that you should start feeds, again, whether it be gastric or small bowel, that I think, again, is institutionally dependent. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the patient that requires long-term feedings. And we know that choosing the appropriate location for placing the feeding tube can minimize the problems, as you detailed in your article. For the patient who's had diabetes for a long time and who either has a diagnosis of gastroparesis or you suspect that they might have gastroparesis, 
what approach would you take to placing a feeding tube in this type of patient who requires long-term feedings? I think that some of the same issues with nasogastric or nasoenteric feeding tubes are similar with percutaneous gastric or jejunal feeding tubes as well. In that the percutaneous gastric tubes, whether they're placed endoscopically, radiographically, or surgically, tend to have less complications and are more easily managed over the long term than jejunal feeding tubes, whether they again, are placed endoscopically, radiographically, or surgically. So I tend to, unless I know patients won't tolerate gastric feeding initially, I tend to try to start them with percutaneous gastric feeding tubes. And then if they don't tolerate at that point, switch into jejunal feeding. In some cases, it may be useful to actually use nasogastric or nasoenteric feeding to determine which patients can tolerate one or the other. The other thing with diabetic patients is they do have relatively high incidences of gastroparesis, but often their liquid emptying is relatively preserved. So gastric feeding is not necessarily contraindicated, especially if you're going to pump feed, which you may say loses the benefits of gastric feeding if you're using a infusion pump rather than bolus, but certainly if you're going to go to jejunal feeding, you're going to be using an infusion pump anyway. So again, I will often try gastric feeding first in that type of patient. Do you find that in these types of patients that the better their glucose control is, also if you're using gastric feedings, that they tolerate them better, let's say if you're doing a bolus infusion? Absolutely. I I think the data is pretty clear that the better their sugars are controlled, the better tolerance and, and actual motility they have. There's even data that's showing within uh, normal glucose levels that at higher glucose levels, gastric motility is impaired. So the better those are managed, the more likely they're going to tolerate gastric feeding for sure. Yeah, I think it's an important point to think about in addition to where to place the feeding tube. Right, I agree. Okay, um, another question, again, this is pertaining to long-term feedings, that there's a number of low-profile feeding tubes available on the market, and personally, I don't see these used very often in adults, and the patients that I've seen them who have them say that they're easier to manage and they're more comfortable than the traditional PEG tube. As a gastroenterologist, what do you consider when you're contemplating placing one of these types of feeding tubes? And perhaps why do we not see these to be more common in long-term feedings? Or is it just a local issue related to Arizona? <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. That's uh, that's something I see nationwide. And I agree with what you're implying is low-profile feeding tubes should be used much more often And I honestly think that it's an issue related to uh, training and experience with feeding tubes is that a variety of physicians place feeding tubes, again, most commonly gastroenterologists and interventional radiologists, but there's a variety of other groups, uh, surgeons, regular radiologists, and anyone who does endoscopy, trauma surgeons in many places. And I think that the issue is that everyone's been trained to place a standard, especially in adults, everyone's been trained to place a standard initial placement tags, and that with the adult population so much more than the pediatric population, that a lot of times that the adult population has limited life 
expectancy and survival. And for that reason, in many cases, the percutaneous gastrostomy is placed and very little follow-up is needed or done for that patient. And that it's a minority of patients who need really long-term access who are going to survive for a long period of time. And I think that, unfortunately, I know from gastroenterology, there's a lack of training and experience in placing these low-profile tubes. Uh, and I think to some degree it's true on the interventional radiology side as well. I think they're actually often a little bit better because interventional radiologists tend to often treat both pediatric and adult populations, so they have a little more experience with it. But I can agree with you more that low-profile tubes are not used nearly as often as they should be. And if you wanted to consider using one, do you place it immediately or do you convert a traditional tube into a low-profile yeah. tube? I think the standard is converting a standard profile tube to a low profile tube, and that's a little bit because of what's available on the market from industry in terms of placing initial placement low profile tubes. It's available, but the ones that are out there either are relatively new or not as simple to use as the standard initial placement tubes. So I would say someone like myself who actually is does a lot more enteral feeding tubes than the average gastroenterologist or even interventional radiologist, I still tend to place an initial placement standard profile tube first and then convert them later. And I'm assuming that you would also have to consider the abdominal girth of the individual. If they're really overweight or obese, it probably would preclude using that type of tube, or would it not? Um, well, that's been a little bit of an issue in that, you know, sort of with the fattening of America, that the low-profile tubes for people who are who are larger, they hadn't been making them in, in long enough lengths. Most companies had sort of stopped at four and a half to five centimeters, but there's some movement to make them longer, and you can special order longer ones. But that brings up the whole issue is uh, why are you putting in a feeding tube in an obese patient, although we all know there's the need comes up more often than, than you realize.